Welcome to the second episode of the Facilitator M podcast. This podcast has been created to host discussions of relevance to Global Partners M's in Phase 4 and 5 fields. My name is Bob Bagley, Associate Executive Director of Global Partners, and I get to introduce you today to today's discussion. We'll be talking about the book, Slow Kingdom Counting, by Kent Anand. Like me, many of you have been strongly influenced by the book, When Helping Hurts. One of the unintended consequences of that book is that it's left a lot of people paralyzed, knowing and feeling like they want to help, they want to respond to the suffering and injustice of the world, but afraid to do anything lest by doing something they make things worse or they hurt instead of help. Anand's book gives us an approach to life that can free us from that paralysis. Today we are indebted to Brian Etzminger, host of the podcast Engaging Missions, for giving us permission to use the interview he did with the author of the book, Kent Anand. In this excerpt from that interview, Anand will give us some personal background that shows us where he is coming from, and then share some of the focus of the book with us. So here's Brian Etzminger and Kent Anand. Kent, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you, Brian. Now, this is this is super exciting for me, and I, I think this is a really timely conversation. I know I mentioned this to you in email as well. Over the last few weeks or so, it's been kind of coming up on the show, the concept of justice or of doing short-term missions correctly with, you know, trying not to do more harm than we do good. And so I'm really excited to be able to have this conversation. But before we get into that, I'd like to know maybe a little bit more about you kind of get to know you a little bit. Can you share maybe a little bit about your, yourself and your family beyond what I've already shared? Yes. Yeah, so I was born in Canada. I grew up there till I was 10 and moved to Florida. I lived in Florida till I was 20. went to university down here. When I was 20, I was on a track to go into business and was studying business and was president of our university's business club. And then a family friend recruited me to get involved in missions. I know you talk about missions here on the program. And so he said, hey, just come try doing missions and work with this refugee ministry for a couple of years. You know, and I think he, he said, come do it for a couple of years. And that was 23 years ago. <laughs> and so I went and worked with the refugee ministry in Europe for a couple of years. And it really set me on on this path where I did that for a couple of years and came back and went to seminary, got married. And then my wife and I, after being married for two years, moved to Haiti. And, you know, we'd been married for two years. We got on a plane, headed down to Haiti within 24 hours. We were living out in the countryside in Haiti in a tin-roofed house with no running water and no electricity and sharing a room with a, a farming family there and lived there for two and a half years. And it's just beautiful, became part of working on education in Haiti and lived there for two and a half years. And then for the last 10 years, I've been going back and forth and working for a nonprofit that focuses on education in Haiti with churches and with schools. So there's kind of the, the quick bio of what brought us to this moment here together. Are there any particularly meaningful scriptures in your life? I think that the, the Psalms in those ways, like we just mentioned, I think mm-hmm. we'll get into this a little bit more, but I think that what I've really been thinking about for the last two years is Micah 6, 8, to think about these kind of issues and and family. And I have, I have a son and a daughter who are 
10 and 7 and so this might get 6 8 of you know well what are we supposed to do with our lives and God says well you're supposed to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly you know, with God and I find you know in the busyness of life and demands and when my own preoccupations or or ambitions or selfishness and all these things I find Micah 6 8 just is, is this amazing call back to what's most important so Kent as we're as we're shifting to talk about your book I guess I'd like to hear a little bit about who this book is for primarily Yes, yeah, so I, I think you mentioned one of the main groups. I, you know, I started writing this book a few years ago, and I was just coming up on 20 years of, of largely focusing on this kind of work, uh, work around justice. And I thought, well, I hope I've learned some things, some things by failing, some things by succeeding, <laughs> and some things by, by watching other people who are doing really good work. So as I was doing that, I really came to think that writing this book for a few different audiences, I think the kind of audience who would be listening here, and one is to church-type folks who go on missions trips, who support ministries, would be a local homeless shelter, a family family center, people who have lost their jobs, foster care, whatever it is, I think for, for people who are doing that kind of work in their community as well as internationally, which would include short-term missions trips, I wanted to give something that, uh, a book that really gives sort of a, a grid and these practices for people to think systematically about how are we doing this work. And I think I'd say, you know, many people would have heard of a book, either read it or at least heard of a book called When Helping Hurts. It mm-hmm. came out about 10 years ago and you know, I think that book was great and I was I, I think it served so many people so well I really saw this as a book to hopefully serve people who are on that path of when helping hurts what, what are next steps how can they reflect theologically on the kind of work they're doing and really doing and really give a, a positive vision and tools for them to move forward on that path so I think that's one group I think a second group would be you know people in university in their early 20s who are getting involved whether it's full-time or just you're working in business and getting involved on the side and how you're serving serving Christ and serving your neighbors and thinking oh I've learned these things like I said through mistakes and through through breakthroughs and learning and thought, oh, I want to pass on what I've learned so that hopefully you can be further down the path than I was when I first got started. And I think the the third group would be for organizations themselves. So they've had different staffs of nonprofits who are reading the book together and boards of nonprofits and charities, like whether it's in Colorado or in New Jersey or wherever they are reading this book together. And it can be a nice way to reflect on how and missions committees who are reading this book together as they think think about working with refugees who are coming in. So it's a lot, but I think all, all within the, this area of people who want to love their neighbors, whether locally or internationally, and what's this positive vision for doing so in a really thoughtful way. Yeah, that's good. And I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned the book, When Helping Hurts. I think my experience with that was probably similar to at least a few other people where I read the book and I go, okay, well, clearly what I'm doing isn't the best but I didn't feel like I had a plan or something that would go, okay, now how can I do this right? It, it left me with a really good framework to understand and yeah. to kind of get some, 
some basic understanding, but then to go, okay, now what do I do? It left me, frankly, just kind of going, okay, what should I do? And that's one of the things I really liked about your book is that even though I I still have questions, I mean, I'm going to be honest, I have questions, but you shared a few things that really helped me and really kind of spoke to my heart. One of the things you talked about was the idea of five practices. Would you mind sharing what those practices are and maybe a little bit about each one to help us understand them? Yeah, exactly. And I I think I found some of that too. And I felt that at different moments, whether it was with helping Hertz or with other, other books and feeling some of that paralysis. And that's probably exactly what I wanted to address in this is people not feeling paralyzed on helping other people, but to step forward kind of in faith, but also in thoughtfulness, you know, with heart and head fully engaged. So the way I, I structured this and thought a good way to think about this was to give readers five practices, five practices that I would say, you know, if we do these practices, they can really help us engage in thoughtful ways of loving our neighbors and their practices. So uh, we don't have to be perfect before we start, and we're not going to be perfect, you know, uh, two years in, but there are these things that can help us keep on reflecting and keep improving along the way. So the five practices are, the first practice is attention. And this practice of attention is where are we called to focus so that we're awakening to the need for justice, knowing we can't solve all the problems, we can't we can't address every injustice we see on Facebook, but where is God calling us to engage and then how can we keep renewing that so we don't, you know, face compassion fatigue and burnout? The second practice then is confession. As we we awaken and get involved, I think we're going to do much better if we confess our own vulnerabilities. Say, you know, that we like to feel good when we when we help other people, or that we do get compassion fatigue. I've found confession helps lead us into honest understanding of of power and of the dynamics and of our own vulnerabilities, and that helps us to serve way better for the long term. The third practice is the practice of respect. Whenever we go into these situations of of helping people, we can hurt them as well. But I think a great antidote to that is to be really thoughtful and deliberate about practicing respect. And so having deep listening and engaging our imagination so we love our neighbors as ourselves in a really more profound way than we do sometimes. Uh, The fourth practice is a practice of partnering. In partnering, you know, anytime we work for change, there's going to be so much partnering involved. So I give some ways that people can think through how they can partner with others and not just for them. That can lead us into more profound, lasting partnerships. And then the the final practice is a practice of truthing. Uh, It's not a word that Stephen Colbert made up (laughs) or that I made up, but uh, this practice of truthing is, you know, basically how can we get the best ideas and have our feet on the ground and see that, that when we're involved in loving our neighbors and doing this kind of work to help other people, we want to keep on having the truth shape us so that we're helping in the best ways possible. So that's a a quick run through. Uh, And I I find that these, any one of these practices can help someone, you know, oh, that, that one can really help our, uh, what we're trying to do right now. But taken together, these five really can give a, a way to think holistically about what we do. And I think they really reinforce each other in a positive way. Yeah, I thought so as well. And I guess I'd like to spend, if we can, maybe just a little bit more time talking about the first practice, the practice of attention, because I think for a lot of us, it's going to be a really powerful starting point. In the book, you mentioned that there was a church, I think it was Calvary Church, that started practicing attention. Can Mm -hmm. you share maybe a little bit about, uh, about that story, about what God did in and through that church? 
Yeah, it's this great church I got to know, you know, three or four years ago. And this church in Calgary had been working on, been a growing church in a medium-sized, small-sized town in Michigan. And, you know, they're growing as a church and came to the point where they... Uh, needed to build a new building. So for several years, they did a capital campaign. They raised millions of dollars to build this new building so that they could, you know, seat a thousand people on a Sunday morning and and grow the way that their their church was growing. Um, they did this. They finished the capital campaign and Pastor Frank, and they, they built the building. You know, so Pastor Frank went on this two-day spirit kind of spiritual retreat before they were going to have the banquet when they're going to celebrate finishing this big project and um they're going to burn the mortgage and then they're going to get ready for phase two and phase three of this project because uh they finished phase one so he went away on this retreat and and just i think stepping away for 48 hours he realized he was exhausted and he realized the church was exhausted and realized what they actually needed was not to dive immediately into phase two and phase three but to declare a year of jubilee from the old testament concept of this resetting of resources and and kind of resetting a focus on god's faithfulness and looking outward to make sure that justice was being served broadly in in society and so they did that and the way they did it was really beautiful they decided to they they built this building for themselves so they decided to go out to six or seven countries around the world and they did one i think they did one in the u.s in harlem and they went to india and they went to haiti and different countries and helped you know build a school build a church building and help other people and and hundreds of people from their church went out and did this during the year and they gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars in this reset you know really beautiful beautiful experience for the year and i I think meanwhile the pastor and the you know the elders the leadership team had had print, i think they had actually printed up the brochures you know brochures for phase two and phase three that were going to be coming up next and they figured they'd dive in after this year of jubilee but they got a surprise when everybody came back from all these experiences of having a year of jubilee they said you know what we don't want to just have a year of jubilee we want to be a church of jubilee and they've seven years later they've never started phase two or phase three of their <laughs> building and what they've done is just become really involved in ministry and they decide they need to focus if they're spread too far that their attention that had been awoken in this beautiful way would be spread too thin so they've focused their attention really largely on working in haiti and helping out in haiti and then also working in their own community in michigan especially around foster care issues and school and tutoring and those sort of issues and they have been really deliberate on sending people out on trips and getting people involved in their communities. And to me, as I, I thought about their story, it was great. And then I started thinking about this practice of attention. I found it really helpful for my own lot. And I thought, wow, this is great. Like they, they were, their attention was awoken uh, to the need for justice and they followed that. But then they realized they needed to focus because otherwise they'd, they'd get spread too thin and they wouldn't learn and get better. And thirdly, they needed to be renewed in their attention mm-hmm. because they needed practices. Otherwise, we know all of us can kind of burn out and, and lose our, our focus. And so I, I really thought those three parts of awakening to justice and focusing our, our efforts on justice and then finding ways to be renewed in the way we do this were three great ways of thinking about attention that I think can apply to us as a, as a church, but also as a family or as an individual or a group that we're working with.
Well, that that's good. And, you know, I really, uh, I'm thinking about that, the comment that you made about how at first they were spread too thin. And just to be frank, that's one of the things that I struggle with, you know, having mm-hmm. interviewed uh, over a hundred missionaries, it's yeah. really hard to keep up with all of them. And it's hard to choose because I, I actually want to stay connected to every one of them. Mm-hmm. Did, did they apply any, how did they choose who they were going to stay connected with? How did they choose where to focus their attention? Yeah, you know, I, that's a good question. I mean, I think they, they did a process of, of praying. They thought about where they could go, you know, that they thought, oh, if we're going to do this for the long term, I think the fact that they could fly to Haiti made sense. So I think, in a, and they were mm. both seeking God's guidance and then thinking practically, like, how do we do this so that we can stay connected? Uh, you know, just like in your case, you know, talking with so many people, sort of thinking, okay, who, who could I stay connected with practically? Who am I going to run into at least once a year? I could maybe see them in person because I can help the relationship going. Mm-hmm. So they yeah. did this, this, which I've found in my own life too, this sort of combination of thinking really spiritually and thinking God's guidance and then thinking, thinking practically on, okay, what are these ways if we're going to do this that we, that we want to sustain our attention? So uh, there may be more as well, but at least those are at least two ways that I observed that they, they worked on discerning that where their attention was being called. Yeah, that that's really good. And and frankly, there's so much more in this book that I want to get to. We're not going to have time in this section to cover everything. I, I know I mentioned we wouldn't get to everything. I, I thought we would get to more, but you know, there's just so much to dig through. There's so much meat here. I guess I'd like to tie a bow on this section by just asking a question about the practice of truthing, which is the fifth practice that you had mentioned. You shared in your book that um, that, that that it's really, it can feel like sometimes adding truthing, which is the practice of making sure that what you're doing is based on the truth, that the results you're seeing are based on the truth, a lot of that kind of stuff, can feel like we're adding something to a to-do list that's already too full. Can you Hmm. share a little bit about how how people can approach truthing, knowing that what you're doing is right and that the results are accurate? Yeah, I I think for me, and it sounds like maybe for you too, and it would be for other people that this, uh, this, you know, the, the amount of studies that come out and they're proving one thing and maybe they that gets reversed two years later can Mm -hmm. be a bit discouraging over time and also we have this idea that sometimes helping hurts and and we don't realize till later so you know i was thinking about that and thinking well what what can we do and i thought this process of truthing where we're we're committed to this process of having the best ideas and then also having our feet on the ground and experiencing these things yeah it shouldn't feel like a fear or like a threat, but it's actually this beautiful invitation and freedom, freedom that we don't have to be perfect or know the the perfect solutions. But if we, we go in with attention and with, with confession and with respect and with partnering, then seeking the truth means we just get to keep adjusting and keep getting better. And, and I think true thing is, you know, another way to say it might be it's discipleship that we get to keep growing and that God's guiding us and that God's given us minds and so we use our minds in the best way. And we might not always have the most resources, but we can learn from other people that have a little bit more resources than us. You know, if they've done a study or found something out. So, you know, at different times as I've done my work in Haiti or with refugees or in local community here, you know, it can be, be discouraging because you don't know what's, what's um, bearing fruit or what's doing its best. And I thought, well, actually, we don't have to have perfect knowledge, and nobody does, but it can be really freeing to think, well, we're called to be faithful, and I think we're called to be fruitful as we love our neighbors. And if we seek truth and keep, keep being willing to be shaped by the truth, 
And that's a, a beautiful invitation to to moving forward. I say at the beginning of the chapter, you know, truth without love is just like this sort of shiny object that's not mm-hmm. moving anywhere. But love without truth is like a boat without a rudder, you know, sort of aimlessly out there. But when we have love and truth working together, I think that's a, a, a beautiful way forward towards helping helping other people flourish and in, in moving towards justice. Wow, that that's good. It's going to take me some time to process what you've shared, but I'm just thinking about the idea of truthing being part of discipleship. That 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 in itself is a concept that's going to take me a little bit of time. So thanks for giving me something to think about. With that, we are going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to shift our focus one last time more toward the minister. Here's a taste of what's coming up on the Engaging Mission Show. Almost everything we do in our Christian walk is a, a faith walk when you break that down, but mm-hmm. But the sense of provision, uh, not only uh, economically, but health and logistically and opportunity. Mm-hmm. In other words, wanting to go, having a call to go, and having the opportunity to go because you've been asked to go, or if you will, given an open door mm-hmm. or an open invitation. When you can come, let us know, and we'll set something up. Those all, all of that mixes together with faith. Uh, the the logistical planning for trips is a huge step in faith because depending upon the mechanics of how far out you know you can book things, uh, then you've got an issue about stewardship in terms of the the further out I can buy purchase right. flights, the cheaper it'll be, and that translates to stewardship because uh, um, there's an aspect of preparation that requires you to move in faith going, I'm going to go again. I just don't know when, and I just don't know how. If you enjoyed that, you won't want to miss a single episode of the Engaging Mission Show. Subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher to have it delivered automatically. Visit engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. That's engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. All right, we're back with Kent Annan. He's frankly, he's been blowing my mind. Not only was his book good as I as I went through it, but now as we're talking about it more, there's there's just so much here to think about. Now, as we shift our focus, though, I, I want to focus on you as the listener, Kent. As I'm thinking about our listener, most of them, most of the people who listen, care deeply about missions, but they maybe don't feel called to full time vocational ministry. What would you share with somebody who's called into the marketplace, but they're starting to wonder if what they do really matters in the kingdom? Yeah, I think, you know, this fourth practice we just talked about really briefly of partnering, uh, it's something that, that I've learned and been so grateful for in, in the ministry I've been involved in, and often full-time, and not, not always, but often full-time. And, man, for the, for the people in the marketplace, like, their partnership is invaluable in, in helping ministry happen. So, like, your role is, uh, is amazing, both in just what you're doing day-to-day, uh, relationships with colleagues at work and coworkers and customers you're serving and using your gifts to, to you know, serve your family and also you know so much of ministry like churches happen and people serving people who are poor or if it's World Vision or Haiti Partners or whoever it is like all that happens because of gifts of people who are working hard day in and day out and sharing their money generously so um, and then so much volunteering that happens so. I would just, you know, there could be a moment where someone's listening and they 
are being called to shift vocations into something full-time, but I just want to affirm anyone who has a, a calling into the marketplace that is a, a full calling of God that is in no way lesser than uh, a calling to missions, and it's together that we partner as different parts of the body, and to me, I, I feel so generous sometimes to be this bridge between people who really are working in the marketplace. I get to be a bridge of, that's how I see it, between their generosity and then these amazing colleagues I work with in Haiti. So I feel grateful to get to be a bridge. And in that position as bridge, I just have huge amounts of honor and respect for people on both sides, people in the marketplace here in the U.S. and people in Haiti who, uh, Haitians who are doing the work day in, day out. Wow, that's good. I, I appreciate that image of a, of a bridge. That's That's pretty cool. As you think about somebody who's maybe living here in the U.S. or in North America, and they're beginning to realize that more and more of their neighbors or their coworkers are people who are from a different world religion or perhaps a place where we thought a few years ago maybe only missionaries go there, what would you share with them? Yeah, man, I, I think it, both in this, the, the couple practices here, attention and respect are a couple of them that I, I think are are really applicable to this and it's thinking about, you know, how is our attention awoken as, as our world shifts, as our neighborhoods shift? Where are we called to serve serve Christ and and love our neighbors? So I think that's one part of it. I think this chapter on respect has this really beautiful cultural example from Haiti that just sort of slows us down and think, how do we respect and get to listen to mm. and know our neighbor? And so I think as things shift, I, I think, you know, and we we know we're in a political time and different fears come up and, you know, rightly and wrongly or wherever they are <laughs> on the scale and none of us know exactly. But I would say as followers of Jesus, that perfect love casts out all fear, right? And that, it, that it, instead of a time of of fear, it seems like it, it's a time of, of love and not in denial of everything, but the generosity of love is beautiful. And for, and there's actually one church I got to visit who's reading Slow Kingdom Coming as a template that's helping them as they receive a refugee from Syria. And so they're reading this book as a church to think through how can they help this Syrian refugee family and be really thoughtful in the way that they serve them. So, so, so I think it's obviously a, a bit of a turbulent time, but I think that's, that means it's also a time where we have opportunities for love and grace. Wow, that's good. Is there maybe a book or a resource that you'd recommend for our listeners? Uh, along that line, that is a good question. You know, there's a new book. Oh, I should have uh, written this down. It has refugee in the title, but World Relief is a big nonprofit that does a lot of work with mm -hmm. refugees. And there's like Stephen Bauman is one of the authors. Matthew Sorens, I think is the name of the other author and refugees in the title i'm feeling embarrassed now that i didn't have that right at recall i thought of it earlier and just lost it but but i think if you go to a world relief site or do that then they've been really thinking through some of these issues of you know because they they're serving both overseas but then also you know working with people who are receiving refugees here so i think that that would be one resource of a, of a book that i know people are finding meaningful to think specifically about this refugee question in the context of your kind of bigger question about you know how we think through this time with a lot of change and shifting going on. Well, that'd be great. For those of you listening, my plan is to have everything linked up in the show notes, which will be available at engagingmissions.com slash Kent Annan. That's A-N-N-A-N. Now, Kent, we're just about done. Would you mind sharing with us maybe one last piece of advice and a good way for people to connect with you? Then we'll say goodbye. 
Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I'm on social media, so Facebook and, and Twitter, it's slash Kent Annan, and also have a website, kentannan.com. And one resource there that I invite people to, and it's a, a practical thing for people who, like you said, who, you're, who are a lot of listeners who aren't in missions full-time, we've created two different discussion guides to go with this book. One is for if a, a you know, Sunday school class or just a book club wants to read the book, and there are great questions that people can use. So that's one. And then the second uh, material we have is I have a friend who's a mom and lives in the suburbs of Atlanta and read the book and really liked it and created this family toolkit. It's a fantastic uh, resource that I've actually used with my kids and our family since then. So it has 20 car questions, call them. So hmm. questions about just doing justice as a family right here in the U.S. And, you know, one, one example of a question is, you know, to ask Ask your kid, you know, a seven-year-old, I've done it with a 10-year-old, it would work with a teenager, uh, I'm actually going to be doing it with a youth group in our church soon, and, hmm. you know, if you could have any superpower to help in the world, what superpower would you have? And my friend's, you know, son had said he wanted to be Aquaman, because he'd heard <laughs> about the problems that some people have of not having access to clean water. And so, you know, these really great questions to start reflecting as a family, and then there's some activities that you can do that are practical and fun to think about how you can get engaged in your community with these five practices as a guide from the book and then also some some prayer prompts for how do we pray about a world like you were just saying brian that that feels turbulent and overwhelming at times we want to be engaging but also praying so um, so those resources would be available at those sites and at kentannon.com because i i think these practices really can apply uh, however you're engaged in mission whether it's at your church or locally or part-time or full-time Oh, that's great. And, you know, for a guy with young kids, I'm thinking maybe that that car toolkit would be a great thing for a a long drive. So I appreciate you mentioning that. Thanks. Thanks, Ken, so much for being with us. I really appreciate your time and your generosity. Thanks again to Brian Etzminger for allowing us to air that interview. We're also very appreciative to Marsha Vermeer for introducing the book to us. While this is a book that you can profitably read on your own, it's really especially geared to be read together in a group and to be able to discuss the implications in a discussion group. And so we're thrilled to be able to announce that Marsha is going to be hosting an online book discussion group around the book, Slow Kingdom Coming. And that'll give us a chance to read together and to, to discuss together the things that we are learning from the book. You can contact Marcia if you want more information about that. Thanks for taking the time to listen in today. Now all you need to do is go to Amazon, buy the book, and sign up for the discussion group with Marcia. So until next time, take care and God bless.